Well, uh, 153 years ago, uh, this last Sunday, Palm Sunday, 153 years ago, uh, at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, General Lee surrendered the armies of Northern Virginia. And for all intents and purposes, the Civil War was coming to a close. And that happened on Palm Sunday, 1865. Um, on, uh, on the Wednesday, uh, Lincoln spoke about uh, setting the slaves and, and, and mending the, the nation, setting the slaves free, uh, mending the nation and, and in the South and, and everything that they were dealing with. And then uh, uh, it was believed that on Maundy Thursday, uh, that's where John Wilkes Booth had decided to uh, assassinate and put into his mind to assassinate and go forward with the plans to kill the president. And as you know, on April 14th, which was Good Friday, 1865, uh, President Lincoln was in Ford's Theater with his wife, Mary. Uh, they were watching My American Cousin. John Wilkes Booth approached the back of his head with a derringer and shot him. Uh, and he labored through the night uh, in an attempt to stay alive, um, didn't utter any sounds, didn't speak. And they were so fearful that he would die in a theater on Good Friday and so concerned with what uh, the pietist Christian uh, community would think that they moved him out of the theater uh, into a boarding house so that he would die across the street and not die in a theater on Good Friday because it would be considered uh, terrible, first of all, that he was attending a theater on Good Friday and let alone having died in one. Uh, it was just considered immoral and wrong. And as we know, on April 15th, 1865, he died. The great emancipator died um, uh, on on. April 15th, 1865, 153 years ago, this, uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, 650,000 people died on a field of battle. He was, he was used to end slavery in America. And on that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, of course, it was tragic and sad. It was supposed to be a celebration and everything was to be in bunting, red, white, and blue, but every portion of black fabric was sold throughout the nation and sold out throughout the nation. And, and the nation was draped in black. Most of the pulpits in America, of course, were saddened by the very first assassination of a president uh, and the death of a president. Uh, but many pulpits in America decried the fact that he was in a theater on Good Friday, uh, decried the fact that, that uh, he had never joined membership to a church. Um, even his good friend, William Herndon, his law partner, never believed Lincoln to have been a professing Christian. Uh, although you look at his writings, the first and second inaugural address, you look at the Gettysburg address, uh, his writings more than any president in the history of the United States are inundated with scripture and his grasp of theology is deeper than any president who's ever served before or after. He is uh, an amazing character to be sure. Um, Many believe that he professed Christ. Um, Elizabeth Keckley believed the be so. She was the attendant uh, in the White House. Frederick Douglass believed that. Countless others believed that. Though he had never professed membership to a church nor had been baptized, this is a man that read uh, voluminous amounts of scripture and uh, dog-eared his, his, his own personal Bible in the book of Job. He, uh, he was a man that had uh, a great heart and love for the things of God. Uh, it was uh, Methodist Reverend Peter Cartwright uh, said uh, that his lack of Christianity in the election of 1846 and decried that. And then, of course, William Herndon uh, considered Lincoln to have been an infidel. And it's true that in his early stages, Lincoln had abandoned the faith of his mother and um, Sarah and, and had gone on to even write uh, an article on um, agnosticism or atheism. But later when his sweetheart died and he went through a period of darkness, uh, he had gone through a religious transformation, especially when his four-year-old son, uh, the death of his second son, four-year-old Eddie in 1850, uh, 1850 died. Um, he, he, uh, he went through a religious transformation and very clearly he was deeply touched and his life was profoundly affected by that. Uh, in addition, as I said before, if you read um, all of his writings and you read the, the, the inaugural addresses, it's very clear that this is the case. And what's fascinating about uh, General Robert E. Lee uh, signing um, on Palm Sunday this, this idea of surrender of the armies of Northern Virginia, it's basically he was yielding himself to a greater power. And that's really what Palm Sunday is. They were declaring the Lord coming in. And I don't want to over betray it, but so many uh, folks in history have, have tried to somehow look at that week as being somewhat significant. 
and in so many ways. Uh, but when he was assassinated on, on Good Friday, the tragedy is the pulpits in America decried the fact that he had died for the most part or was in a theater on Good Friday and had been shot on Good Friday in a theater. Half of all Americans uh, in the United States consider themselves Christians. It wasn't an inundated Christian community in any way, shape, or form. But what's fascinating about Lincoln is this is a man that was um, born in a, a backwater portion of, of uh, Illinois, Kentucky. Um, he was born, I, th- I believe, in Kentucky and, and uh, served in Illinois. Um, he was just dirt poor. Um, his father was a Reformed Baptist. His mother taught him the scriptures, said one of the saintliest women he, he'd ever known. Uh, he'd had great influence by his second mom. His first mom had died of uh, uh, milk disease, I think is what they called it. And, and it was almost similar to Reagan that his life was bookended by faith uh, early in his childhood and then later in his life as he, he was assassinated. And then in between, he had all kinds of struggles. So you look at this man who had only held office as a congressman for a short period of time as a freshman congress member, and then was elected to the highest office in the land. And one of the wittiest, uh, most talented speakers. It's said of the Gettysburg Address that it's some of the finest writing in the English language the world has ever known. Uh, just that short statement, um, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this nation a, a new continent conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And he went on to, to read this. And, and uh, the, um, the order that they had hired to speak that day uh, just said of Lincoln in that very short statement he made, he encapsulated uh, just so much. And it was a dedication of the cemetery at Gettysburg. And when you think about this man, he is very unique in the history of America. He was reviled. Uh, Before he'd even stepped into office, nine of the states had seceded from the Union before he'd ever been inaugurated as president of the United States. His own party was divided against him. He had a very low popularity rating. We know so much about that. And yet the death rate in the Civil War, every family was affected, and he just kept throwing troops at it to the point where Lee, or excuse me, Grant ended up winning because he just pushed Union soldiers into what they called a meat grinder until it just exhausted the southern forces, the Confederate forces, and Lee finally surrendered and just couldn't put up with it anymore. And, and yet it came at a great cost. 650,000 people dead in a nation of, what, 33 million people. It was, it was awful, to say the least. Uh, there had been the Second Great Awakening in 1857 with Jeremiah Lanfear that had seen a million new converts in the nation which was significant, and it created a, a, a biblical vernacular in this heart to see slavery ended and gave a moral fiber to the nation. And, and Jews and, and the blacks in America considered Lincoln to be a Moses in many respects because he set the people free. And, and yet the pietism in the pulpits of America couldn't see this man for who he was, and many of them were his greatest critics. And yet he was used to reestablish the nation through one of the greatest traumas we've ever faced, which is a civil war. We've never experienced anything equal to it. Uh, close to it would be the, the, the fight for just our identity in the revolutionary war. Um, and then the civil war, that epic there was, was so profound that we really thought this union would be divided. There would be two countries, the, the, the Confederate States, and then of course the Northern States, but he, he held the union together uh, binded the wounds of the nation, and we survived a civil war. And the Constitution remained intact, which was fascinating. And I share all that because who would have thought that a man like him uh, never had a formal education, raised in the backwoods of Kentucky, never had a formal education, and yet was used by the Lord to save a nation. And that's really what it was. He was used to the Lord to save a nation. I share that with you because I want to bring you uh, to another portion, and I think I just lost the text. Yeah, here we go. I want to bring you to another picture that's equally profound to me, and this is scriptural that I wanted to focus on tonight. And this is something that I covered uh, briefly on Sunday when I talked about uh, the Lord saying, after I have risen, I will go before you. Do you remember that? Yep. After I have risen, I'll go before you in, in, to Galilee. 
And he was speaking to Peter, who had denied the Lord three times before the rooster had crowed. He was, he was speaking the same words that he had spoken throughout all of history. I had quoted out of uh, um, Isaiah 45 in relation to, I will go before you. And I had quoted out of Deuteronomy, I will go before you. And each time you see God going before and vanquishing enemies, God going before and sending locusts to do the bidding and all we're called to do. And and what Peter came to realize after he'd been restored in John 21 is the two words, follow me. If God goes before he's leading, our job is to follow. And he's going to do it in some really interesting ways and things that we probably couldn't figure out or really come to terms with. He's going to choose the way he's going to do it. And when I had quoted out of Isaiah 45, I wanted to share with you a character. And this, this man is very interesting. Uh, you find it in Isaiah 44, 28. And the man's name is Cyrus. Cyrus. It's actually pronounced in Hebrew, Koresh. But uh, we're going to use his name as Cyrus. He was the king of Persia from 559 B.C. uh, And he conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And he's mentioned in just a majestic passage in Isaiah. Uh, And I want to read to you where the Lord says of Cyrus uh, in in Isaiah 44, 28. He is, listen, now look at me, please. He's a pagan king. He's a pagan king. He's a polytheistic worshiping pagan king. Everybody got that? He's vile. Everybody got that? He's got a harem. Everybody got that? He drinks a lot. Everybody got that? He kills people brutally. Everybody got that? All right, here we go. This is what God says of him. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So he's picking Cyrus to do it. He's my shepherd. Why would you pick that guy? Why would you pick Cyrus? Cyrus would be the one who would cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt. We're gonna, we'd see later in Ezra that it's rebuilt, and you can see this in Nehemiah. And it had been destroyed by the Babylonians decades earlier. But there's more to what Isaiah says about Cyrus as the prophecy continues in the passage I covered on Sunday in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed and I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give your treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. And, um, the idea that this non-Israelite king anointed by the Lord um, and God didn't use one of his own children, an Israelite leader. Cyrus, although called by God of Israel, doesn't actually know the God of Israel. Instead, like the vast majority of people in the ancient world, he worshiped different deities in the form of idols. And in fulfillment of this prophecy, the scripture records how Cyrus made this decree to the Jewish people living in Babylon where they had been taken into exile. He says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all of his people, may the Lord, his God be with him and let him go up. And that's in second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. So God uses Cyrus to deliver his people, a pagan king. And God uses a term, I will go before you. He can send locusts to go before him. He can send pagan kings to go before him. And I say that because we're in an interesting season right now in America. uh, I'm I'm at a point where I don't even know if I want to turn the television on anymore. I, I, I have come to a place where I just don't want to hear about a porn star and a playmate. And, and I, there's a president who's committed countless acts of adultery by his own, his own admission. He is, he's vile in that sense. And I wanted to revisit it tonight because <clears throat> God would look, use Lincoln. He would use Cyrus. And, and I'm, I'm looking at, at Donald Trump. And I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is just obnoxious 
And what's fascinating to me is the secular left, those that want to remove God from the equation, don't want to put God anywhere in the culture, and that there's a separation of church and state, and that all these things are laid out before us. They're using his adultery to question Christians voting for him. And he had a highest turnout, 85% of evangelicals voted for him in the last election. And they're, they're, they're moving Christians to say, how can you do this? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. One I would, I would put before you tonight, if we were all Jews in the room in Nazi Germany, we're all Jews in the room in Nazi Germany. And there's a philandering businessman who is unscrupulous and he's gone through a divorce and he's a terrible businessman. He's, he's had bankruptcies and failures. And he is running a scam of a business. And he looks at you and he has compassion on you as a Jew. And so he offers you to work in his factory and he starts to save all of us. Are we going to go with him? Or are we going to decry his immorality and say, no thanks, Oscar Schindler? Any, anybody have a problem with that? You see... I think what the secular left doesn't realize is we're not voting for the man. We're voting for policies that need to be upheld. Now, this is one thing that strikes me. I, I, do, I wouldn't vote for Cyrus. I probably wouldn't have voted for Lincoln. I mean, the, the Republican candidates that Lincoln was up against were amazing abolitionists who had served in office and had far more experience than he did. Sam and P. Chase. I can go on and on about the ones that, that he was running against. But God chose that guy. God chose Cyrus. Here's another one. We've studied him before, but this is what's fascinating to me. This is out of Judges 13. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the land of the Philistines for 40 years. So they were oppressed in the land of the Philistine for 40 years. Has anyone ever seen this? It's called the Titler Cycle. Scottish historian. He says, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, abundance to selfishness, selfishness to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to dependence, dependence into bondage. <clears throat> and this is a cycle of all, all civilizations. And so there's bondage and there's a cry for freedom. And that freedom comes and it's a spiritual faith because you needed some sort of inspiration to deliver you from that bondage. And in that spiritual faith, you, you develop courage. And with that courage comes freedom, liberty. I shall, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And all of a sudden, and why is it that the one thing that they wanted to keep from blacks, slaves in America were the scriptures. Don't teach them to read because faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. And once you understand who you are, created in the image of God, that we are created equal, endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, the first thing we want to do is take those away. But this liberty that was fought for through this courage to, have, to deliver themselves from bondage of England and to come through this spiritual faith of a great awakening, courage, liberty, and then America experiences great abundance. We're responsible in the history of the world for less than 3% of the world's population, yet we're, we're responsible for more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And great abundance, greatest industrial revolution in the history of America following the World War II, uh, greatest expanse of wealth, there's abundance. And that abundance in the 50s comes to brand new big cars and selfishness, <clears throat> right? And then from that, with that selfishness comes complacency. Hey, let's just relax, you know, drop it and tune out. And then with that complacency comes apathy, uh, we tried that. Bobby Kennedy was shot. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. John F. Kennedy was shot. All politics is dirty. And you throw off all moral restraint and you just, you just kind of give up. And then what happens is man falls into bondage, not only to himself, but into society. That apathy results in bondage and then dependency, dependency, then bondage. You're dependent on the government. You're dependent on drugs. You're dependent on your parents. You're dependent on, you're dependent on, you're dependent on, you're dependent on. And everybody owes you something and you're not accountable to the Lord. You're not responsible. There's no moral accountability. And then you're dumb and you're uneducated because you really don't want to discipline. You don't want to study. Someone else is going to do it for you. They promise you everything. And the next thing you know, you're imprisoned and you're in bondage. I, I, I'm fascinated that we're watching students march in America to have their rights removed. 
And they're not educated. They're indoctrinated. They're marching to have their rights removed. And they're decrying that the children need to be protected. But the same ones that are crying to protect the children are the ones that are saying it's a constitutional right to abort your baby. And that's not in the constitution. Yet here is a very clear picture of the second amendment. And they're saying it needs to be repealed and we don't want to do it through the process. And, and, and uh, it's one fifth of Americans want that removed. It's just odd. Take away my rights, take away my ability to defend myself. And by the way, again, I want to repeat this. This is like a man who is, who has murdered his parents And pleads to the judge for mercy because he's now an orphan. So the secular left wants to remove God from the equation. The moral fabric of America implodes. The value of life decreases. Guns are inanimate objects. It's the person behind the gun. Trust me, after World War I, everyone had an M2 or an M1. I can't remember which rifle it was. 30 rounds could be put on this. And there weren't deaths and mass shootings. There was moral commitment in America, moral fiber. People had this accountability to God. Now we remove God from the equation. We've indoctrinated our children. And now everyone's killing each other. And we want to blame the gun and not the person. And the last thing we want to do is put God into the equation. Uh, uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to meet on the, the, the new uh, homeless council. Myself and uh, council member Bill de la Pena. And, and at the heart of every issue is an issue of the heart. And, and we have, if you just want to take a little drive down to Skid Row, there's now 7,000 people on Skid Row. The streets are covered in fecal matter, urine, and rats, and hypodermic needles. California, which was once the golden state, leads the nation in poverty. It is filthy right now. And this experiment in secularism and the implosion of our culture, and we can't spend enough money on the problem because we're not dealing with the problem at the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart, but we've removed through secularism, any commitment and, 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 and honor of God. And now we're going into bondage. And because of the implosion morally in our country, we want to blame inanimate objects. We have to start blaming pencils for falling test scores. And, and, and we're in bondage. So that brings me back to this. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines were anything but godly. It's like being delivered into the secular mindset. And they're, they're, they're running roughshod over everything you hold dear. And we're silent and we're apathetic and we let them take it. They've taken the media. They've taken arts. They've taken the family. They've taken business. They've taken education. They've taken politics. They've taken it all. And we as a church stand back and let them take it. And we go through this idea that we've had spiritual faith, we've had courage, we've had liberty, we've had abundance, and now we're at complacency and we really don't want to fight. And then the complacency brings apathy, and now we're watching our people become dependent. The number of calls we get of people that are dependent and struggling and, and in bondage is tragic. And yet they want a handout, they want help, but they don't want God. They want to deal with the symptom, but not the problem. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And that's the Titler cycle. Well, in this season where the Israelites were in bondage, 40 years of bondage to the Philistines, it says an angel of the Lord appeared to a woman and said to her, indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. And this same vow is put on the child called a Nazarite vow. No alcohol should touch the child's lips. His hair should not be cut. It's the only other time in scripture in all of judges where an angel of the Lord appears. The only other time an angel of the Lord appears to announce a birth is Jesus, Mary. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines, a deliverer who's announced whose birth is announced by God, by an angel to Manoah and his wife. 
And they raise this child in the love and the admonition of the Lord. And they do everything in accordance with that in this Nazarite vow. And imagine how long this kid's hair is by the time he comes to adulthood. So the woman bore son called his name Samson and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him and Mahane Don between Zorah and Eshtaol. The child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. He's a good guy. Pretty remarkable human being, wouldn't you say? Announced by an angel of the Lord. Parents raise him in the admonition of the Lord. Nazarite vow on him. Can't touch alcohol. Can't cut his hair. The spirit of the Lord moves upon him, blesses him. This guy is a stud. Let's see what happens when he gets into adult life. The very first words recorded of Samson speaking. Here they are. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines, the people he's supposed to be delivering his people from. So he went up and told his father and mother saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. I mean, we've looked at this, but I, I, the, the reexamination of it, it still is shocking to me. This is the deliverer of Israel. And the first words out of his mouth are, I want that pagan woman as my wife. It flies in the face of all Levitical law. It flies in the face of everything he's been raised. It flies in the face of what God is demanding and God requiring. I want that woman. Go get her for me. Then his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Uncircumcised mean they have no relationship with the Lord. And I can go through that later, but it is a physical issue, but it's also a spiritual statement. And Samson said to his father, get her for me. She pleases me well. And it was, it was uh, Prince Charles or uh, Prince of Wales who said, it's amazing in America how the parents obey the children. And here we have the exact same thing. I don't care what you're saying. I want it. It's, it's like uh, Willy Wonka. I want it, Daddy. Get it for me. Right? I want it. Get her. She pleases me. Do it. Okay, 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 okay. And, and this is the secret. But his father and mother did not know that it was the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had, everyone say dominion. dominion. The Philistines had, say it again, dominion. over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Wait a minute. His father and mother did not know that it was the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Well, then why is he picking this guy? And a lot of you are going, well, because he's ripped, he's buff. No, he's not. There's, there's nothing in his appearance that would tell us that he was ripped. I don't know. No, you don't understand. He took, he took out a thousand Philistines. He took out 30 Philistines. He killed a lion. He brought down the temple. Yeah, but it was Delilah who said to him, please tell me the source of your strength. Why didn't she just say, look at you? You are just ripped. Look at your pecs and your deltoids and your washboard stomach. I could do laundry on that. <laughs> she didn't say that. It's like Jesus. Everyone says, you know, flowing blonde hair, piercing blue eyes. But the reality is the scripture says there was nothing in his appearance that we would be drawn to him. Nothing. He was comely. He was just average. And, and that's Samson. Why is he so strong? It's not his appearance. It's not like he's ripped. But God's choosing him. He's choosing him. Now, he's got one thing we do know about him. He's got long hair. He probably didn't have muscles because all the nutrients are in his hair. <laughs> now, we, we, I had you say that word dominion. Look at this. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have what? Dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who had dominion in Israel? In case you didn't remember, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Who does God command his people to have dominion over? Over every living thing. And this is probably what you guys envision of God choosing this deliverer of Israel. Here he is. Ha, look at me. 
get to the chopper. <laughs> Hurry up. Look at me, I'm big. I'm Samson. But this was Samson. <laughs> this, was, this was Samson. Now, some of the things we know about Samson that Pee Wee Herman doesn't possess is he had iconic hair, right? He had unbelievable hair. He also took a Nazarite vow, which means he couldn't touch alcohol, correct? Hello? So he has this Nazarite vow. He can't touch alcohol and he has iconic hair. There's somebody else, as I've said in history before, that has iconic hair and has never touched alcohol. He's a teetotaler. His brother died of alcoholism. He's never touched alcohol. He drinks Diet Coke. And who is this guy? And is he a deliverer? I don't know. But let me just show you some things before the Christian community starts bailing on someone who's immoral. There's his Scottish mother, his American father. His, his mother immigrated from Scotland. There he is to the left. He looks a lot like a son baron, I think. That's his younger brother who died of alcoholism. His sister's a judge today. And, and you know, you, you want to talk about he's not allowed to touch alcohol. And he's got a very, you know, strict diet. <laughs> It was, it was the guy that was just nominated to be the head of um, uh, the veterans hospitals, the, the admiral uh, doctor. And when he was, he, he'd done the physical on Trump and he, he said, uh, how can a man be that healthy at 72 eating the way he eats? He says, I told him that if he changed his diet, he'd probably live to 200. <laughs> and, and here he is, the 45th president of the United States, only president in U.S. history who has never served in the military or held prior elected office. Now, this, there's something interesting about this. I, I am a politician. I'm an office holder. I'm also a pastor. I understand how elections run. We know how to poll. We know how to see where we're lacking, how to move in those areas. It's, it's battle. And, and we were engaged in this election, not directly for the president, but we were working in key battleground states, just trying to mobilize people to engage in the, in the political process in a constitutional Republic and trying to get the pews to get out and, and, and vote Christian values. And when we were in Wisconsin and we were in Michigan, we realized in that election, those, those blue walls were coming down and no one in the country had a clue. And it was, it was actually strategically placed that they would, they would broadcast commercials in Minnesota that would bleed into Wisconsin and not by airtime so that it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't alert the, the Clinton campaign. And they were broadcasting into Wisconsin knowing that Clinton had never gone there. And it was strategic. And you look at it and there's, there's, it's just one of the most fascinating elections in American history. And you can say, well, it was the Russians. And you can say it was the, <clears throat> I'm still waiting for evidence on that. I saw Trump signs everywhere in Wisconsin and Michigan. And, and, and I say this because let's go back to Samson. This is a man that carried, carried the city gate 40 miles, 40 miles on his back. This is a man that tied the tails of foxes together and, and burned down the vineyards just to gather that many foxes and tie their tails together. His arms had to be a bloody mess from having been bit so many times. This is a man that tore apart a lion and ripped it open. And yet what was his downfall? Women, women, uh, cautionary tale. We got a problem with our president. This has been in the news endlessly an adulterous relationship, consensual, but adulterous nevertheless, which is a, uh, an anathema and, and a, an awful sin in the body of Christ. We wouldn't tolerate of our leadership in the church. And when we, we want to hold our leaders to a higher accountability. And we're looking at, you know, Samson. We're looking at Trump. Wait a minute. Come on, give me a break. Oh, okay, how about this one? This is a playmate. He carried on this relationship, told her he loved her. I, I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with a man who doesn't touch alcohol, but yet has his own line of Trump vodka. I struggle with a president who 
has casinos and strip clubs or has partial owners in strip clubs. And yet it brings me back to this guy. This guy, there wasn't a single moral thing about this man's life. Nothing. You can't teach the book of Judges and the life of Samson. Excuse me. You can't teach the life of Samson in the book of Judges to a Sunday school class. It is vile. There's nothing redemptive in it. And every time he was sinning, every time he was sinning, something interesting happened. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. When he killed the 30 Philistines to pay off a gambling debt, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Every time he was sinning, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Here he is taking vengeance for them murdering his pagan wife and that he had lied to them and he's killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. A thousand Philistines all in armor and he takes them out with that. I I think of a jawbone of an ass. Anybody? With that jawbone, he took out 15 Republican candidates and the most well-funded Democrat candidate in the history of the United States. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make any logical sense. Have you ever heard in the history of your lifetime, a presidential candidate in a major presidential debate, give more of a defense for life? Of all the presidents prior, who all promised to return Jerusalem to the, as the capital, this one kept the promise. He's fulfilled almost every promise he's made. They're decrying the omnibus spending bill that $500 million went to Planned Parenthood and only $1.5 billion went to the wall and that increase in militaries. What you don't realize, it's an omnibus bill. It's actually brilliant. President Obama for eight years had an omnibus bill, not a budget, an omnibus bill, omnibus spending. He used that money anywhere he wanted. The president knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going to spend it. And the military spending is what he's going to use for the wall. Whether you agree with the wall or disagree with the wall, he said he's going to build a wall. It's fascinating to me that someone says they're going to do something and they're doing it. Whether you agree or you don't agree, at least you know what you're dealing with. Does that make sense? Now, how did he, how did he take them out? I mean, these are really good guys. Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, uh, they're Jeb Bush. And and you you got names for each of them. Little Marco, low energy Jeb. I mean, you can go through the whole thing, can't you? And the higher they rose in the competition, the more that they were attacked by, by that, which was that, right? And he just had this way of throwing up a, t- a Twitter statement and everybody would just, they would just melt. And the, the really good guys realized early on, there's no hope. And it was Mike Huckabee who told me, you know, Ted Cruz would never take us on a trip. We were all struggling, trying to make ends meet. And he was flying to the same location. He had plenty of room because he was super funded and, and he wouldn't take us. But Trump took us everywhere he went. He allowed us to go on his plane with him. He'd take his competition with him. He said he was a lovely man. How did he do it? How, how did, how did Samson do it? Why did God choose Samson? First of all, Samson knew how to fight. What God did, or what Samson's parents didn't realize is God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. What were the Philistines? A warring people. What could Samson do? Fight. Fight. Was he moral? Hello? God had a purpose. He used the Cyrus, he used the Lincoln. He used the Samson. But here's what's interesting. Who had dominion over Israel? And who does God demand have dominion? The faithful. How did he do it? 
Well, we've covered this before. The seven mountains of cultural influence, economy, government, family, religion, media, education, and arts. And in each of these, which is fascinating, there's a currency as I've covered before. These are, these are all cultural mountains of influence. And when I say economy, it's business. And so in business, it's, it's your brand. It's how well your brand is accepted and how prosperous your brand is. Right? Well, let's look at Donald Trump. Does he have a pretty good brand? It's on his plane. It's on his buildings. It's on his vodka. It's on his casinos. It's on his books, his golf courses. Family. Three times married, twice divorced, but all of his children adore him. And in their own right, they're successful. His ex-wives have nothing but nice things to say about him. Religion. Interestingly enough, his mother was religious. His father, not so much. Um, Mike Pence says that he's, you know, and if you guys sat in on the Scott Lamb and David Brody conversation, he's really searching. And how did, he's like Reagan. He got 85% of the evangelical vote and he didn't go asking for it. I, I heard him, he came to our event in Orlando and he was terrible in front of the pastors. He talked about the Johnson Amendment and got the dates wrong and was just, it was just, it wasn't that good. But he said, I, I, this is what I'm going to do. And he started doing it and people voted for him. And they liked what he was standing for. And these were things that aren't popular. The Johnson Amendment, most pastors could care less if he repeals the Johnson Amendment. And that's where churches will lose their tax-exempt status as they get political. And I get threats from the people of the American way all the time. And, and, uh, and, and yet, there hasn't been a single church that's lost its tax-exempt status. And it's a violation of the First Amendment anyways. And, and yet, he's wanting to repeal it. And most pastors could care less if he does or he doesn't but he still takes that stand. There's no political clout in putting Jerusalem as the capital again, being recognized by the United States. None. And everyone said the war would break out and a bunch of other countries follow suit. Everyone said, we're going to be in a war with North Korea. Now we're coming to the talk tables. I don't get it. A year has passed and all that he's accomplished in a short period of time. And it's like, here's the issue over here. And everyone's concerned about, it, and he throws up this caustic Twitter and everyone runs over there and he just pushes this thing through. Well, that's called media. He's mastered media better than the media. They don't know what to do with him. He does Twitter better than Twitter. Nobody knows what to do with this president. You talk about arts and entertainment. He had the number one television show in America. He knows how to play these cultural mountains of influence. Education. In the tax code that he took, $10,000 as a credit to anyone who would do private school, change the course of Christian education across America and taking on the unions, the teachers unions and what's going before the Supreme court, let alone the appointment to the Supreme court and who he appointed to the national education administration, the NEA or yeah. I mean, this is intense. And then you look at government again, he took out 16 candidates and a well-funded Democratic candidate with a Twitter account. His campaign, if you went to the campaign headquarters to get a sign, you had to pay for it. The per vote that he spent for every single person that voted for him was the least amount in modern history. He literally won the campaign with a Twitter account. And he got free media. He didn't pay for any of it. He got it all free by throwing up some caustic Twitter and everybody was over there. It doesn't matter what the other person is saying. Hey, I'm over here. Yeah, but he has the coolest Twitter. <laughs> and you look at it and you think this guy's crazy. But one thing he understands that we don't is he's fitted for this war, just like Samson was and Cyrus was. These are, these are folks that are out to fight and they're secularists that want to have dominion over the culture of our lives. And want us to be subservient and do what we're told and remove God from the equation because God brings freedom. Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. Fact. The word salary comes from the history of salt. The word salt is where we get the word salary. It's right here. This is salt money. This is how they used to pay Romans. And Latin salarium is salt money. That's up in the upper right-hand corner. They pay you with salt. You're worth your weight in salt. 
And anyone hearing what Jesus said in this passage of scripture, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt was a currency. It was a commodity. It was a salary. And in each of these cultural mountains of influence, what Trump understands is there's a currency. There's a currency. It, it, it's, it's how you generate in that if, if we're going to leave the culture here of America and go to the culture of Russia, we don't use dollars, we use rubles. If we go to Guatemala, we don't use dollars, we use quetzals. Right? We go to Italy, it's lira. Everyone tracking me? And there's different cultural aspects. If you want to reach those cultures, you need to understand what the cultural influences are. He knows the currency of each of those cultural mountains. And it's been proven by the way he dominates in those. So he knows that the, the, the currency in each of those cultural mountains is something significant. And he understands politics. And here's the sad part is the church doesn't understand politics. Look at this. Politics is about winning. If you don't win, you don't get to put your principles into practice. Therefore, find a way to win or sit the battle out. So, as Christians, we take a position of moral pietism, just like the ones did when they decried that Lincoln was killed in a theater on Good Friday. And we stand back and we say, that's immoral. And we stand back and we say, oh, Oscar Schindler's immoral. We stand back and we say, oh, Cyrus is a pagan, polytheistic, you know, I no. And, and all the while we lose and we yield to the bondage of secularism by apathy. You know what apathy is? An unwillingness to engage the enemy. And I ask you right now, who has dominion over our schools? A Christian worldview or a secularist worldview? Who has dominion over our medical culture in regards to children in the womb? A Christian worldview or a secularist worldview? Who has dominion in relation to so much in America? It's secularism. And where's the church? We're decrying the immorality of a three-time married, twice-divorced, adulterous, engaging, philandering alcohol selling caustic twittering president while all the while what's he doing fighting he fought we decried him and this is what I want to kind of conclude with look at where we find Samson faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The worlds, the governments were framed by the word of God. What's framing our government today? Is it a constitutional republic that all men are created equal? Or are we wanting to remove these inalienable rights and just let the elites tell us what is good for us? And if we can remove all guns and everyone can live in harmony, uh, this is the exact same thing Hitler said that he just surrounded himself with children and said, hey, we got to do it for the kids and let the kids speak because by golly, they're the wisest of all of us. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I can't wait to hear another F word from that young kid's mouth. And we just march him in droves. And we've been indoctrinated and we buy it and we have no way to defend it because we have no idea how to develop or defend a government of the people, by the people, for the people, realizing that it's consent and that we're created equal and that we realize that man has a sin nature. So we divide the branches of government and we hold two of them, can hold the other one in check. And we, but no, we don't educate the pulpits. We don't understand any of that. We don't even know the role of government because what's happened in America is moral pietism. Moral pietism is the gospel is reduced to this simple idea that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that if we believe in our heart and confess with our tongue that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved to the glory of the Father. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All encapsulated in this week from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, including Good Friday, Maundy Thursday. And we think that that is the gospel. And we are thrilled when we watch people do this. We, we demand that. We love to see arenas with people doing that. Come. And they come. And we have converts and a sea of converts, but no disciples. Calvary Chapel, 51 years preaching the gospel. 10,000% growth, conversion growth. Responding to that gospel that I preach every Sunday. And here in California, south of Van Nuys, 400 Calvary chapels. And we've watched in 51 years, this state implode. As secularism has dominion over this state. One of the most successful Christian movements in modern America and the state where it was birthed is imploding in secularism. Because we think that's the gospel. Now, please, I am all in favor of that. But I want us to get back to the man who fought to set black Americans free from slavery, who got a bullet to the back of his head on resurrection before Resurrection Sunday. I want to get back to a place where the Cyruses of the world and the Samsons of the world are willing to take a gospel that we think is this, but is actually pushing back and fighting for the freedom of mankind. We have reduced the gospel to a myopic picture of apathy. Because if we can get them to do this, we can get them to do this. And if we can keep their butts in the seat without activating them to transform a world and just avoid controversy so as not to upset people. It makes it so much easier. So much easier. And you know what? When it gets to that place, there's no pulpit in America willing to stand, so God goes and picks a Cyrus, or he picks a Samson, or God forbid he picks a Trump. I like what was written here. And I want to read it to you. Samson was committed. Uh, excuse me. Samson, as long as he observed these regulations, he was holy unto the Lord. Samson was committed to those rules even before he was born. And as far as I could tell, and I examined these chapters and judges fairly closely, Samson never broke those rules. He had other problems in his life, other sins, but he never broke those rules. And counteracting the one-sided evangelism of our day, which tells the sinner that all he has to do is to accept Christ as his personal savior and heaven is then his certain portion, ignoring the fact that there is a fight which must be fought in a race to be run before he can be crowned. Second, in uh, rebutting that doleful view that the Christian should expect nothing but frequent and well-night constant defeat in his warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, overlooking the truth that if he meets the required conditions, he may do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Third, in setting before us by clear exemplifications and striking illustrations, the rules and requirements upon which success is conditioned, here as nowhere else in scripture are we shown how we may be overcomers. And making known the blessed fact so little apprehended by Christians today that it is both their privilege and birthright to enter into a present possession and enjoyment of their inheritance. You see, the idea is Samson struggled in his holiness, but not in his activeness for the Lord. He was willing to do what God's people weren't, engage the enemy. We, we like to stand on our moral high ground and not engage. But the worlds were framed by the word of God. And that means it gets into every nook and cranny of every structure of the world. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith did what? Who through faith did what? worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. I could go on about what he declared. Who through faith raised his hand? 
That's a good start. But who through faith subdued kingdoms. There's a war. Our children are under dominion by secularism. And you know what? I'll tell you what was really unpopular in America in the 1850s. Abolitionists. You know what's really unpopular in America in the 2010s, 18s? Anti-abortionists. And you know what isn't discussed in most of the pulpits in America? Abortion. Let's just do this. And just drop a tithe and go on your way. And then God would pick a guy like him to do what nobody in the church wants to do. And the secular left realizes the only way he can stay alive is if we can convince the churches that he's immoral. Well, he may be immoral, but the church is inactive. I just think about America. April 15th, 1865. The nation covered in black cloth everywhere. A man they reviled and hated. Changed the course of American history. And is now one of the most beloved presidents in the history of our nation. I don't think Trump will rise to that. I hope he does. I hope that he keeps his slate clean and that those issues that are being brought before us are 10 years old and there's no more. But in the meantime, if he's going to defend the unborn and he's going to give our children the ability to pursue God and protect religious liberty, he's going to strengthen the military reduce the burdens of taxes and socialism, which is a violation of two of the Ten Commandments of stealing and coveting. If he's going to give a viable opportunity for future generations, I'm in. I don't care what you say. I don't care. And I'll get this all the time when I travel the country. I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. And I always say, Unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you will always be voting for the lesser of two evils. So just stow that. And the other one that they love to say is, well, politics is dirty. And I say, so is the church. What's what's your point? Well, I I just can't see voting for that man. I remember one pastor told me I, I didn't vote for the president. Oh, you didn't vote for, I didn't vote for Trump. Oh, so you voted for Hillary. No, I didn't vote at all. No, you voted for for Hillary because your convictions and the things that you hold to are the antithesis of what she was espousing. And by not voting for the one in contention with the one whose values you disagree with silence in the face of evil, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said is complacent with evil itself. So yes, you did. That's apathy. Apathy comes bondage. You don't, you don't have that ability. The currency is winning. You don't know the currency. That's why we got to get somebody else who knows how to take out 16 candidates and another one with his jawbone. We have to be educated in these cultural mountains of influence if we're going to have an influence. Why, why do we not influence Hollywood? Oh, we don't want our children. That's immoral. We don't want to send them there. Oh, no. But we'll send them to go watch all the stuff they produce. We just don't want to send them in to make a difference. This is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a battle for the hearts and minds of people. Either the Philistines and secularism have dominance or God's people stand for what he declares. And what's interesting is when the seculars have dominion, people are enslaved. When we fight, people are set free. Individual freedom before God and accountability. People don't kill each other because God says, I shall not kill. 
And we put that on the walls of our homes and we teach our children. And thou shalt not steal. Oh, no, no, we got to keep God out of it. Secularism, nobody stood in the way. We took prayer out of schools. No one even made a whimper. Just we give it to them. We just take it. And we've turned the church into this. And I'm excited. Because that president, morally, I don't like him. But he shames me. I think he sleeps four hours a night and he's continually fighting for issues I hold dear when everyone in my community decries his moral failure. And I just got to say, I'm challenged by him and thankful for him. And I pray for him. 